desperately need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. I'm Jay Moran, and thank you very much for being with us on Buffalo What's Next today. We thought it would be a good idea on the day after the election to continue to talk about election. We heard a lot about it already on NPR, obviously, but uh, uh, a chance perhaps to to reflect a little bit and also kind of bring the local view into things as well, the state view, and maybe even a little bit of the national as well. And here to help us out, Professor Anthony Neal from uh, Buffalo State, history professor and also of uh, Africana Studies as well. Professor Neal, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Uh, Thanks uh, again for for uh, taking the time to, to come in. And there's a lot to, to talk about. Obviously, off the top of the list here, a lot of us were interested in seeing and hearing what was going to happen with the governor's race in a heavily Democratic state where there hasn't been a Republican in the uh, mansion in the Albany since George Pataki, that uh, uh, it was uh, maybe going to be another Republican. And Lee Zeldin, that was the word that we were hearing. But uh, overnight, the Associated Press declared Kathy Hochul the victor. What are some of your initial thoughts? Well, it's a, a lot, to, a lot of ways to look at it. One was uh, downstate, upstate, given the fact he was uh, Long Island and Hoko is uh, Erie County, uh, Hamburg. Um, and, and and based on that reality, some would think that someone from upstate cannot carry downstate per se because uh, some may believe there's bias uh, against uh, upstaters. But in, in looking at Hochul, I know she, even though she was quiet during the time she was lieutenant governor with Cuomo, she was, she was making friends. Uh, I came to learn that particularly in the Latino and the African-American communities in, in downstate in New York City area, she was going to events and people were getting to know her, but that to make news, but I think that paid off to help her out in the long run. Once she became governor, she was able to pull or call on those contacts that she had made, and definitely she resonated with those communities. It's interesting. We haven't seen all of the results and a chance to to break everything down, but I think you did mention to me that she did perhaps surprisingly well in the Bronx specifically. Oh, yes, because we uh, prior to the election, we, we all heard about Latinos trending more toward Republicans and uh, uh, Democrats losing their base, even uh, African-American men maybe trending toward Republicans. But uh, after the election, we see that that was a little overstated uh, and some, certain issues were able to maintain the uh, Democratic base as relates to uh, African-Americans and Latinos. Curious about some of your thoughts, because I, I know you, you pay attention to how things are described and the, the rhetoric that's used. And there was obviously a lot of rhetoric about crime in New York State, um, 
lot of a target against the bail reform and other social justice issues that have uh, come out of Albany in, in recent years. Was there an undercurrent to that that should be noted? There's an undercurrent, and, and it's, it's nothing new. Uh, the issue of crime, of course, carries a black face with it. When you look at uh, Zeldin's commercials, uh, one in particular where he just sh- shows people being, you know, firing guns in the streets and what have you, it, it has a certain texture to it, a certain context to it that points to uh, the belief in urban crime and urban crime is uh, out of control and therefore we have to do something to, to, to stop it. Crime is not, I think some people use it as a wedge issue simply to get elected, but there are some politicians and government officials who are serious about addressing crime because we all know crime exists, like here locally, when we talk about uh, what's been happening in Allentown and areas such as that. It, it's a serious issue. People want to address it, and it shouldn't you be used just as an issue to get elected. But I think, I think Hochul... Uh, she did not shy away from the issue of crime. She just addressed it in a different context. And she talked about illegal guns on the street and what have you. And I think that, too, resonates with uh, people as well. Like you said, when the, the crime issue, a lot of it, like you said, can have a black face to it. How does the black voter then respond to that type of imagery? Do they? Is it typical to respond against that that type of person or do they sit out i mean how how what do you what do you find well the black voter responds by essentially saying oh here we go again (laughs) (laughs) here we go again uh well well, as an african-american myself it's like quite used to it and whenever i hear it it uh sounds clearly we, we just hope or you hope that other people aren't swayed by it as much since it is an old tactic uh, that has been used, I guess, going back with Nixon, I guess, in the Southern strategy, I mean, those type, those type issues. But uh, for the most part, I think black voters respond by turning out to vote. Uh, even if you want to try to suppress the vote, one way to try to beat it is simply actually going and voting. This is a, an opinion, but I think you're you can. Uh, move through it with uh, with some facts, if you'd like. Um, how damaging has been that type of political rhetoric throughout the years for for black Americans? I believe it has been quite damaging, but it, it just builds on a narrative that has you know, been placed on the black community uh, since the uh, feud to slave laws in terms of the criminalization of black skin. And it's, it simply continues. It it changes it variates or has variations through different election cycles but it's a constant and as i mentioned i think one way to beat it is for african americans to continue simply to turn out and to vote to vote their interest to the individuals who really want to address the issues of crime uh without labeling one particular group as where you know all the criminals reside because African-Americans, black people, people of color, they want to live in safe communities, too, just like everyone else. We don't know necessarily all the breakdowns of uh, 
demographic breakdowns of the election from last night locally. At the same time, what can you tell me about the black voter in Buffalo? Um, we see that Hochul, what, one Erie County, I believe, yes. um, which is not always the case in these uh, races for governor. Um, what could we suspect, perhaps, uh, about how the black voter in Buffalo responded in this particular election and how, and just maybe some other thoughts about the, the black voter as well, you know, what we've seen historically. Well, looking at national trends and historical trends with uh, 90 plus percent of the black vote going to Democrats, I believe that that particular trend held in this election because prior to the election, what we hear, what do we hear is going to be a red wave and a red wave is possible when you're able to peel away a certain amount of black support, a certain amount of independent support. And when that doesn't happen, because you have more registered Democrats than you do Republicans, and of course independents, when they sway more toward Democrats than Republicans, uh, that's an indication that uh, those issues, uh, you know, those wedge issues are not really working or did not work. I'm glad you brought up the, the national elections. It's maybe a time to get into that a little bit, right? I mean, it's interesting to talk about what's happened locally and also in the state, and we can most certainly circle back. But uh, that was the, the big prediction. We did hear, I guess, uh, President, former President Trump basically proclaiming that it was going to happen. Um, doesn't seem like it really has. Uh, no, and I, uh, that's bad for him, uh, good for <laughs> if I might say, good for the country, bad for him. But nevertheless, uh, what did happen, that Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, I think some people forgot about it, but in exit polling, it it was still a salient issue, more salient than inflation, because leading up to the election, that's all we heard about. Right. Inflation is the economy. Joe Biden's bad numbers, his unappro- his uh, disapproval rating. But that was the silent issue that people have forgotten about. Maybe it's because the way we look at women in politics still in this country is not being the most important issues. But for women and for a lot of men uh, who support women, that was still a major issue. People had not forgotten about uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And in even in red states where you had, for example, constitutional uh, amendments on the referendum about banning abortion, those fell. And those that wanted to support abortions, those were successful ac- across the country. So that was still a salient issue, even though it had somewhat taken a back seat to the economy going into the election. Uh, but just like to use an analogy in a football game uh, between predictions and that's why we play the game. Right, right. That's why we vote to see what's actually people are actually feeling. What What do we know that I guess we expected that midterm, that going to be the the standard midterm shift in the House of Representatives it does right now? I know there's a lot of of. Uh, elections in the House that still need to be determined to, to see who's going to control it, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. But is it a little bit of a surprise to see that maybe the the progressive Democrat stayed engaged and, you know, not just talked about it, but actually went out to the to the polling place and voted? Yeah, if you go look at it historically, Bill Clinton lost big 
uh, in the midterm elections. Uh, he won in 92, but in 94, that was the Republican Revolution that brought in Gingrich and, went, and that whole crew. Uh, Obama lost big, lost big in the House <clears throat> based on the Tea Party and, and the health care issues. And I think looking at it historically, we were thinking that the same thing was going to happen to Biden because, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole talk was Biden's low approval numbers. Is he going to run? He shouldn't run. He's over the hill. He's old. He shouldn't be there. And and the Republicans are coming in with this red wave and, and looking at it in that context. We thought that Biden was no Obama. Biden was no Clinton. And if they lost big, it's, it's definitely going to happen to Biden. But it didn't materialize. Uh, something else was at work that's much deeper than what we're told that the pundits tell us in terms of the economy and Biden's uh, low approval numbers. I've always speculated, and I could be wrong, that his low approval numbers are not just tied to the economy and, and monetary issues. I think there's a bit of ageism there uh, in looking at Biden and some, even my students, Really, when I, I query my students, it's not what he's doing or what he has not done because he did address the issue of uh, student debt, and some of my students were concerned about that. I think they still look at him as the the old candidate, and sometimes there's a bias against age in that respect, simply because his age. They want to turn the page and try something new. So uh, you probably understand the demographics in terms of age and such. Are we seeing the, the Republican voter? Is there maybe just a thought that the, the, the that diehard Republican voter is getting older and the Democratic progressive voter in, is is becoming younger? I mean, is that a a, a, a statement that can stand? I'm I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think that could be happening on both sides, in, in all honesty. Because when you look at Trump, for example, Trump is in his 70s, but no one really ever talks about his age the way we talk about Biden's age. Uh, but something's happening to break the fever, to, to a certain extent, the Trump fever over the Republican Party. Right now, I think the Republican Party has somewhat of an identity crisis as in terms of what what we're going to be going into the election. And immediately after Trump lost, it was the, we, the party of Trump. I don't think today we can actually say that is the party of Trump. There's a Trump wing, definitely, but there are other... Republicans, DeSantis in Florida in particular, who are gaining some momentum and strength, who may not agree with that the Republican Party is a party of Trump or Trump's party, per se. Interesting to talk a, l a little bit about Trump here. There was the, like we, I mentioned earlier, the proclamation that came out, I think it was on Monday, and he told us that he's got a big, big announcement to next Tuesday. Could there be some reevaluation of that right now? I believe if they're smart, they would be. But uh, based on e egos and the, and the uh, 
the egomania coming from that particular camp, it's still possible that a big announcement might come. But if it were to come, I think it would uh, flop uh, in terms of people's acceptance uh, acceptance of, of that particular announcement. And based on this election, uh, I think Democrats are emboldened that they're probably no longer afraid of the big bad wolf anymore <laughs> in turn, <laughs> and probably more willing to come out swinging uh, against Trumpism than they have been in the past. Dr. Anthony Neal from uh, Buffalo State with us here this morning uh, talking about uh, yesterday's election and I've got a few other things we can get into for sure as well but uh, you've really intrigued me here. Um, so we've talked about Governor DeSantis out of Florida had a huge win last night, double-digit, really a landslide victory, and there's been a lot of talk about him for over two years now that he's going to going to run for president, coming out of a key state, obviously, in Florida. Any thoughts about, though, if, like you said, if, it, if the Trump element r- remains tied to that identity and, and wants to see it move forward, or return, I should say, and if DeSantis were to run in, and others probably will join in as well, what we might see in terms of uh, a Republican primary moving forward? I know we're projecting, but what the heck, we're here. Let's talk a little bit. Yeah, I, I believe in a Republican primary. And let's not forget about Pence. Pence, uh, they didn't hang him, so, <laughs> so he's still alive and well. He's still out there. And uh, he, he still has political ambitions of his own, so he's... Uh, and not too long ago, he tried to distance himself from from the former president. You have uh, DeSantis, of course, and you have the the also rans who, even though they're not as popular now, uh, Cruz still lurks around. He still wants to be president. He still wants that uh, that mantle, even though he he's probably damaged goods, can't get it. But you always have to watch out for him in terms of what he might plan to do. I'm going to turn this around on you just a little bit. If you were advising the Republican Party in, to gain a true majority in this country, what would you advise them to do? I would advise the Republican Party, in all honesty, to embrace some issues that they have uh, somewhat uh, run away from. Uh, I would embrace issues around uh, securing not voter fraud as as it has been uh, given, but definitely to secure the vote so that everyone can vote. Uh, if you expand the electorate and you nourish that electorate, that electorate will 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 support you. I think one of the Republicans' uh, downfalls or shortcomings has been the belief that Immigrants coming into the country will eventually automatically be Democrats. Therefore, let's keep them out of the country. Uh, let's not expand the electorate. If you expand the electorate, new voters coming in will automatically vote Democratic. That's not necessarily the case. If you address new voters and their their concerns in a way that's not uh, stereotypical, you can win over that particular voter. So I would advise Republicans not to 
be so mean-spirited toward those type issues, but to start to embrace those issues. For example, um, um, the gentleman who's uh, who was uh, or in office and he's leaving or he left office based on the uh, redrawing of the districts uh, on the issues of gun. I can't call his name. It loses me at the moment, but Jacobs. Okay. Yeah. Jacobs came out in favor of gun control. And that, that surprised me to no end. And when he did that, it made me think twice about him as, even though he was a Republican, as opposed to taking the absolutist position about no type gun control whatsoever. And I thought if, if Republicans drop those absolutist positions in that regard and start to truly address people's true concerns and, and, and not bait their followers into an absolutist position, it would be much better. One other thing about uh, Ron DeSantis, I want to get back to him just a little bit here because I did hear quite a bit of him on NPR this morning, and he was celebrating his victory and uh, you know how Florida is the um, the model state for how uh, government should work. And uh, he used a term that I guess I've, I've been hearing a little bit more, but uh, I think he called it anti-woke, that he is an anti-woke uh, agenda, so to speak. When you hear that, what do you think? Uh, just as we we spoke about crime, uh, black people being you know labeled as criminals or uh, dog whistles to point crime and you point toward the black community, the anti woke message is no different from that. The for example, the Supreme Court case uh, that they recently heard in regards to affirmative action, uh, some will hope that. When they start reading their verdicts uh, next year, that uh, affirmative action will come to an end, too. That's an anti-woke sentiment in that respect. Uh, woke is a term that has been misused and taken totally out of context that when it started. Woke was just an idea for African Americans to be conscious of what's going on politically uh, and to really... Uh, start to look and address one's concerns so that your rights that you have won would not slip away. That's all woke uh, was or meant to be, but those who have taken it out of context are trying to turn it into something else or use it uh, as a wedge issue or as a phrase to say, uh, you and I are on the same page. It's like a wink and a nod in that respect. It's like saying anti-black without saying anti-black. Hmm. Um, I want to shift gears here in our final uh, five or six minutes or so here because we you were kind enough to help us out uh, earlier this summer and join us uh, at the last minute to talk about some issues. And we, we got into one thing that I thought was fascinating, how Atlanta, when they had their major project, building that airport that has become the, if not the hub in mm-hmm. New, of, of the United States, maybe the second most used hub of the United States, how the community made sure, it was, it was made sure that, that the benefit of that particular project benefited everybody in that community, especially minorities in Atlanta. And of course, we've talked about it a lot on the show, how Atlanta, in a lot of ways, it has a, a, a black, uh, you know, 
upper class and upper middle class as well since then. Um, I want to bring it into the Buffalo Bills stadium project here. Mm -hmm. The election's over now. Kathy Hochul has come up with a a plan for the uh, paying, paying it, uh, paying for the, um, the stadium. We did hear that Thurman Thomas is going to be one of the three. Yes. His uh, Project 34 uh, is going to be one of the three planners there. But what about that moving forward? Um, are you comfortable with how things are progressing here? Will that project benefit the community, the, again, specifically the overlooked portions of this community? Well, we, we hear about those who will build it, but we don't know exactly what's going to be built. And uh, looking out that area, since I live close to the area and I know that area very well, the idea is to make it a destination point uh, beyond football season uh, for people who want want to come. I think now the only thing that's at the stadium is the bill store. So there's the idea that if you could create shops and a mall or a plaza area. If you do that, you go, you need to bring in um, uh, people of color who own businesses as well to address them to set up and have interests, uh, restaurants, uh, the whole nine to participate in that. In addition to farming out or having contractors or to help in the actual building of the stadium as well, so think in Atlanta, it was two-pronged, not only, I mean, to build it, but also to to occupy it once it is built, to have businesses, visible businesses there as well to generate uh, revenue and income. It's interesting to hear you say, though, you know, uh, getting you know, black-owned businesses in that area. When you said it, it sparked this imaginative portion of my mind, maybe the hopeful part that says, you know, this isn't just something that's going to help out a couple of people, but this could be something that would really be one of those a permeable cultural area for this for this community that we don't have, right? I mean, you know, we yeah. know about the segregation of the East Side. Yes. And that there's an opportunity here where the the cultures could could really meet. If we say the Bills Mafia, uh people who like the Bills say the Bills Bring uh, the bills bring us together. Uh, whatever we, our political differences on Sunday, we all come together <laughs> for the bills. Let's let's expand that metaphor in terms of other areas of participation for all those people who support the bills or want to support the bills to benefit from supporting the bills as well. Expand that metaphor. I like that. I like that. I want to. I want to carry on with that as uh, as we move forward here. I, I mean, I mean, any thoughts about how that could be put together, or is it just going to take some 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 leadership to and some some bold leadership to get this done? Well, in all honesty, when I heard about uh, the thirty four group uh, participating in it, that's a start. That is definitely a start uh, to make, and we know that uh, th- uh, his history with the team and what have you, but. That is definitely a start. And I'm sure there are other individuals or groups that are similar that could be brought into the project uh, as well. And uh, just a couple more minutes here. Your students, your students. It's got to be interesting to, to hear students at this at this juncture here of, uh, of history. 
What's their response to what's happening in the, the political world, both locally and nationally right now? Well, it's going to be interesting to see what their responses are post-election. I know going into the election, uh, students were somewhat uh, down, just like I was a little afraid of the election, to be honest, going into it. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if their optimism is restored uh, post-election, because going into the election, it may by help feed the narrative to them uh, saying that this you know this could be next to the last election democratic election that we have and based on the turnout from yesterday it seems like we may have a few more democratic elections before it's over <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see if the if their optimism picks up was that uh, a lot of rhetoric or were you legitimately concerned i was legitimately concerned in all honesty um, because I've I read and watch how authoritarianism can creep in and it can creep in in such a way and I've looked at other countries how politicians have used their constitution to get elected and then once they're in power change the rules of the game to benefit themselves to stay into power I've seen it happen and I often query my students, do you know enough about your government to realize that you could have a facade of democracy, but not really democracy. You could have elections, but those elections could be so so scripted that you think you're selecting someone, but you're actually participating in, 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 in an authoritarian regime that uh, only lets you think you have a say in government as opposed to an actual say in government. Dr. Neal, I think we're going to have that be the last word. That was, those were pretty good words. Dr. Anthony Neal, Buffalo State, thanks for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. Oh, thanks for having me. Great having you. we got to have you back again real soon. Uh, this is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to WNED.org vehicles. Who better to show off the fantastic towns of Western New York and Southern Ontario than the people who live there? Check out the popular WNED PBS Our Town series now on YouTube. Debuting this week is Our Town Ellicottville. Filmed by community members in 2005, it features nightlife, skiing, shopping, quaint places to stay, and so much more. Head to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel to watch and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at wned.org slash pbskids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. 
Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and with me to talk about the cannabis business is Canna House president and founder Reggie Keith. Reggie, thank you for being with us today. Thomas, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate you creating this space for voices for us, man. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from and all that? Yeah, man. Born and raised right here in Buffalo, New York, uh, on the east side of Buffalo, uh, Fillmore Avenue, North Parade, across the street from the Science Museum. So right in the heart of the east side. Um, yeah, man. Went to Buffalo Public Schools, uh, uh, Charles R. Drew, 59, uh, and then went to Performing Arts, Buffalo Performing Arts, here, right here in Buffalo. What got you into wanting to create a, a marijuana business, a marijuana-related business? Yeah, man. Honestly, um, I've been a consumer since I was young, right? 13, 14, I was introduced to the plant. And so I've always had a passion for it. Right? And so uh, that passion um, kind of paired with my skill set and my experiences really kind of pushed me to the direction of like, hey, um, I don't want to work for anybody. You know, uh, what can I do that I love? Um, and uh, how can I use the skills that I've already gathered, kind of my work history. And so paired all those things together, man, and it was just a perfect storm for, you know, a cannabis entrepreneur. As we get closer and closer to legalized sales of recreational marijuana, has there any has there been any clarity from the state on how this is all going to work? What do you know? Yeah, man. I mean, shout out to the OCM, uh, Chris Alexander. Uh, the whole staff, um, they had a big workload ahead of them. Um, and as a legacy, um, you know, representer uh, myself, I would say that uh, at first it was rocky, right? There was some real uh, lack of transparency, lack of clarity coming from the OCM. Um, but they've done a, a great job uh, as of recent as to just reaching out, creating lines of communication, um, and licensing are starting to come out. Right, I do know that there's some things coming down the pipeline that will really allow people to, <clears throat> excuse me, start to set a tone for you know their path for license, um, you know, life in the cannabis space here in New York, um, and it's happening. That's that's what I can tell you. It's happening. Yeah, for folks who don't know, what is the the OCM? The OCM is the Office of Cannabis Management. It is the uh, organization responsible for handling cannabis here in New York State. Um, as it relates to uh, legislation, regulation, um, excuse me, uh, and the rollout of those rules. And so, uh, yeah, they are putting together, you know, rules and regs for each license category. Uh, there's upward of like uh, eight to ten license categories. And so uh, the first part of the supply chain has been rolled out, which is growers and processors. Uh, there's just been the first 150 retail locations introduced um, I don't think they've identified everybody as of yet, but mm -hmm. they've taken those applications um, and they're processing that now. Um, and so right now you'll have the first, you know, open retail locations, um, hopefully by the end of the year, but probably, you know, first quarter of next year. So, yeah. You mentioned that you were a legacy representer. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Um, so legacy is what they've deemed representing uh, a group representing those who were operating in the in the cannabis space before legislation passed, right? So those who were, um, you know, I don't like to use the black market or anything like that, yeah. but, you know, we made a successful um, goal of 
cannabis operations so much so that the you know the the state gave up and they said (laughs) you know what we need in on that and so um i think this this very industry stands on the shoulders of of legacy operators expungement of uh marijuana related crimes how does that work if i if i've got a possession charge does the state of new york immediately strike that off my record or do i gotta jump through a few hoops uh first yeah so it's my understanding i believe there was some auto expungement originally when the law passed so i'm not exactly sure of what those crimes consisted of Mm -hmm. um but yes there is a process that if you weren't like auto expunged there uh you can go through Right. There's uh, expungement clinics that are held throughout the state on a regular basis. You can go to the uh, OCM's website, which I believe is Office of Cannabis Management dot G-O-V. Excuse me if I misspoke that. But, yeah, they usually have that information available. And um, yes, it's not as you know strenuous as one would imagine. And it's definitely worth you know going through the things that they're asking to get that expunged. But, yeah, um, a very, very important part of, you know, seeing that cannabis industry exists is making sure that people that got taken away from their families and homes that were broken up are, you know, those things are rectified. Talk to me about, uh, for those who, who are not in the know, what is Canna House? What do you get? What do you guys do over there? Yeah, man. So we, um, at our origin, uh, is a cannabis centric social club, but we've really evolved into a uh, consumer resource center of sorts, right? So we focus on, um, we started with activity-based events, so creating dope spaces and safe spaces for people to consume, right? We also provide product awareness, whether that's through reviews or safe sourcing. You know, we want to make sure people know how to get safe and um, good quality products. Uh, But education and advocacy, you know, those are our four pillars. That's what we stand on, making sure that the community uh, knowledge is ele- elevated because that allows for, you know, the easy integration for these new businesses into the community, right? You can't just imagine you're going to pop up your multi-million dollar company next door to somebody who absolutely doesn't understand what you're doing, uh-huh. right? So it's important to educate them and get them on board, whether they are investors or just going to be your next door neighbor, right? And then advocacy, you know, um, advocating for um, the consumer. You know, oftentimes the advocacy stops at the purchase, once you purchase and you're, you know, um, have the product or the plant in your hand, um, you're kind of left to your own, you know, um, free will to kind of find your way around. And there uh, is an important opportunity and void in the market to make sure that people have um, a safe space to go to. And we want to advocate for that um, to be um, readily available in most communities. Yeah, and, and that's why you have uh, the dope spaces because, um, you know, not everyone can – take their product home and you know have a couple tokes and listen to jazz records right that's a fact that's a fact man right some people that might be in federal federally funded housing um you just might have a landlord who just doesn't isn't okay with that right you just might be in a position where you can't go home and consume and you need a space that you can do that in 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 comfort and um allows you to still uh, stay true to who you are and so yeah we we definitely want to make sure we're creating that i was uh i was taking a look at a uh another interview that you did and you mentioned the term legal consumership what does that mean yeah so um consuming as a you know as a pastime of the black community we've we've oftentimes just uh been spenders 
right? Mm-hmm. And so um, what I really was referring to there is kind of the legal consumership of cannabis. But in general, uh, we really want to talk about the maturation in, uh, of consuming and educated consuming, right? And I think from a place of like maybe just buying your products out in the street, you kind of don't necessarily have a say-so outside of saying, hey, man, I don't really like this product. You know, next time I come back, give me something better. Yeah. Right? But, you know, in legal consumership, you have the ability to leverage your purchase power. Right? And so if you telling somebody, hey, I'm willing to come here and spend my money at your space, as a community, if we come together, we can then demand that that, that retail or that location then give us something in return other than just a product. Right? If you're going to be in my community, this is what I'm expecting you to reinvest. You know, this is how I'm expecting you to impact the community around you. Right? And those things are, um, I think, a big part of like a mature legal consumer um you know, yeah. lifestyle. So what what would that look like then? You know, you've got a if you've got someone who is not of the community that has a business, a, a power related business within that community. What does that give back to the community? What might that look like? Yeah, I think it is uh, dependent on the community itself, and I think it's important that you go and poll and ask that community what is it that they need. Right? Oftentimes, people go into communities thinking that they have this plan and they're going to come in and this is how they're going to help these folks. And mm-hmm. if those folks don't need that help, then that can be, you know, taken a totally different way. And so it's important for you to go ask, hey, what do I, what can I do for you here? Right. I'm instead gonna, of dictating. Instead of dictating and say, hey, this is what I got. I'm yeah. Give you these crumbs or I'm going to give you whatever we've thought about in this room with these, you know, no offense, usually like five white male guys are in a room putting together this plan and it is totally void of perspective. And that perspective usually leaves like a tone deaf approach to you know, solving some of that community assistance. Yeah, I, I want to actually get back to those uh, those five white guys in a little <laughs> bit. But uh, um, in your position, do you talk regularly with people of color who are in this business, uh, look or looking to get a foothold uh, in this brand new industry? What do you discuss with them if you do? Yeah, um, a big part of uh, our approach to. Um, filling this void in the spaces. We are a membership-based club, right? And so we have a ton of um, peer-to-peer and member-to kind of executive mentor conversations where it is exactly that, right? We have a volunteer program where we come and they can help us set up. But in that time, they're just picking our brains, right? Gathering information about, you know, just understanding the industry, right? A big part of it is just laying a solid foundation of understanding the plant, uh, so many misconceptions out there, um, so many things that we've gotten used to, terms we've been getting used to using that are just outdated or antiquated, and we really need to update everybody, right? So it's like a refresher most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and then, you know, specifically, if there's somebody with experience who's like, yo, man, I want to get into this thing. I've been doing this already, right? We really help navigate, you know, the approach to uh, licensing. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we've gathered a, quite a few resources and we try to do our best to leverage those resources for not just our benefit, but for some of those folks that we're trying to mentor. So you consider yourself a mentor then? Um, loosely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the responsibility, the role that I've kind of matured into is, um, yeah, if you got it, man, it's, it's unfair to, it's to, to hold on to it for yourself. What's it like moving into these spaces, uh, moving in these spaces uh, with with other people of color who who have the same vision as you i mean it's so refreshing right I, i've um you know assessed my skill sets over time and they've really uh lended themselves 
perfectly for this industry. And I feel like that's a natural thing for most people of color that I see, right, is this fits us. It allows us to be our full selves, right? Um, I can walk in as me. I don't have to put on a suit and tie when I'm in meetings, right? Um, I can even go in smelling like weed. Right, it's not even a bad thing, right? And so those things, I feel like, like this booth, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so you know what I mean. I yep. think that's that's um, that's that's um, refreshing to be able to be your authentic self. And then um, I'm I'm really really impressed by, um, you know, how serious we're taking ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right, people are getting over here, and it's not about just hey a handout. We're like, you know, we're running a serious business over here, and we want to be taken serious. And um, that that is really, really uh, uh, invigorating and is encouraging, and it keeps me going, honestly, uh, for real. Is there a fear amongst you or the people you congregate with um, that the licenses to sell and grow maybe in large quantities will eventually or are already being gobbled up by the rich white guys. 1,000%, right? The industry's already 92% owned by, you know, white-owned companies, right? And that's, it's a sad story because this is a baby. It's an infant. There's no reason why it should be, it's, it's, it should grow up and have to turn into a white-dominated industry, right? We can be intentional about changing that. And big shout-out to the majority leader, Crystal People Stokes. I will always, you know, say her name in the highest regard because, Nobody's intentionally created legislation to kind of combat that. Absolutely. Right? You know, She's a real trailblazer. Real trailblazer, man. Uh, the godmother is what I affectionately call her. <laughs> um, you know, but she she made sure that the bill represented 50% um, representation of social equity applicants, right? Meaning, you know, folks affected by the war on drugs here, you know, our community, um, you know, veterans, women, um, and distressed farmers. Right. And so uh, of that group, we fit in a a few of those categories. And that's important because if 50 percent of this industry looks like us, it can truly change our trajectory in our like our social economic, you know, um, status here in the country. So you're listening to Buffalo. What's next? Thomas O'Neill White here talking about the cannabis business with Canna House president and founder Reggie Keith. As I was uh, talking to you about before, I was I was peeping your breaking barriers podcast with the that you were on uh shout out to tommy mcclam and daniel roberts this is your fourth warning to come on this podcast please <laughs> I'm a, please I'm come a, on I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cinema tech for you. <laughs> yeah. um but but on that podcast oh also shout out to uh dorian withrow who was on last week you were talking about creativity and having a creative mind. That's important to you. Mm-hmm. So important, man. I, I think we all, uh, our purpose here is to be creative. And oftentimes our life just creates restraints and constraints. And, you know, we kind of box ourselves in. Um, but our full selves is, um, you know, at the core built on creativity. And so um, that leads me, man. Creativity, I think, and innovation is what keeps the world going, right? It's new stuff, you know, and all that stuff has come an idea that was birthed into some work ethic and then, you know, spawned into an actual um, executioned, you know, plan. And then we see that out in, in, in reality. But it all started with some kind of creative thought, 
And so, yeah, creativity, I think, is um, essential to, you know, any good idea. How do you how do you put that into what you do with Canna House? Yeah. So our approach was always like, all right, how can we stand out? You know, how can we be in this space? But how can we create something that's not there? Uh, how can we, you know, see these voids and create something that is going to be special? Right. And so, um, again, using my experience, my parents always do these cool little shindigs at the house. And so I knew how to get people together. I knew how to, like, get us and gather us and put us under the guise of something like a good time. And so from that, it was just like, all right, how creative can we get? You know, what can we do to make people feel like, oh, man, I've never experienced this before. Right. I can consume at the house with my friends. I can consume in the garage. I can ride around the smoke. I don't Mm -hmm. have to go, you know, spend money to go sit in this event. Um, unless I'm getting something I wouldn't get anywhere else. And so that creativity is, um, yeah, like I said, essential to, to Canada House's, you know, existence. Can you give me an example of, like, a uh, something you would throw, like a party, a shindig? Yeah, man. Uh, so we're all about activity-based events. That's our niche, right? So it's puff and painting, uh-huh. right? It's cooking with cannabis. It's murder mysteries, um, kickball, you know, games, right? It's all about taking the consumption and then pairing that with something cool to to do, right? And so then that gives you those creative juices flowing through consuming, and then we find a way to exercise your mind or to expand it. And um, yeah, talk to me about this murder mystery. What was that all <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, murder mystery was dope, man. We actually did it downtown Buffalo. Um, it, it it was uh, our first approach at it. But it really was a star. You know, a lot of people got into, um, like, really coming to, like, rehearsals, sort of say. Right? We did, like, these Zoom uh, calls where people can kind of, like, learn their character and just understand what they were responsible for doing. And then we get there, you know, we give them a kind of a script to follow, a flow. Um, and then the goal is to find out who done it. I actually died in the first murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to my brother, Val Shine. He's um, uh, also our uh, head of marketing um and so he was kind of like uh the the other role that found me and like he made a scene of it and they had to like solve my murder okay so So it was like a play then yeah i mean sort of it was like a everybody's involved in kind of this like role play story yeah and it's like you got a character and then the goal is to actually find out who done it right like a clue scenario um, and so the story was I was like a nightclub owner. I was throwing like this big event in my penthouse and um, I wind up, you know, getting killed. And so <laughs> people had to like dig through some clues that we had left throughout the night and, uh, you know, piece some things together. And um, it wound up being a really dope time. Again, just, exp- you know, using your mind once it's expanded. Yeah. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about uh, the way creativity comes out in like food yeah 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 talk a little bit about that i heard heard the lemonade's bomb yeah man shout out dirty lemonade dirty products um uh we also have a sauce line now urban jane's secret sauces but yeah man so we've we've always kind of tried to like again be on the cusp of like introducing the community to new things right and so 
um, one of the things we found along our path of like consuming, I grew up in the era of like smoking, right? Just rolling mm-hmm. up six, seven blunts, yep. we're playing the game, we smoke all day, we just get as high as possible. And which is cool, right? But as I matured, I really like to start understanding like there's ailments I wanted to solve, if that's a topical that I wanted to rub on my body, or if, you know, it's like, hey, I can't smoke in this place, so I need to vape. So I started to develop like a diet, like a diversified diet of like, consuming options okay okay, i don't have to just smoke a blunt yeah right and so then from there it was like all right well you know let's use butters and let's figure out how to cook stuff and so my brother's actually a a self-trained chef wow Um, and so um just partnering stuff together we 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 always did this as kids you know what i mean like he's been cooking i've been tasting his food forever and i was like this mixologist like i always would like mix a bunch of juices and drinks and stuff like that and so you know as we mature we really started to take that perspective and go hey we got some skills you know and then we were started doing these events and we were like all right well we want to provide something outside of just the um puff and paint or the murder mystery and we want to serve people things let's infuse the food mm-hmm. right and then we're like well you know um the social we learned that of course social life is about like uh the drinks you know you go out on the scene you go to the bar right, right. to get a drink and so we had to kind of fill that void of like hey i want to get people something to drink but i don't want to bring alcohol into the scene and so um th- again those necessities and those needs that we saw that were just like how do we feel that we use our creativity to say hey you know, we can create products that can fill those voids, right? We want to feed people. Let's cook them some dope-tasting weed food, right? Yeah. And cannabis-infused <laughs> food. And then the same thing with drinks. It's like, all right, I want to make sure that people can walk around and, and get drinks and feel good about the night. How can we do that? And so it was a, a hell of a process just getting to understanding dosage and how not yeah. knocking people out every time you just got them <laughs> together. Um, and, and again, man, that that kind of like study and, and um, kind of – maturing from like street knowledge to like real science uh really helped us kind of like take that creativity to another level what's your favorite thing to make Ooh, me personally uh gotta be the lemonade um uh, um it's it's just our it's our flagship product it's, uh-huh. it literally is like my baby you know it's like the first thing i really like dove heads in on like being a hundred percent um manufacturing of of that and so i understood the whole process from making all of the infused options that we you know infuse the beverage with um to finding the flavors you know i've named all the flavors we got five flavors we just introduced a sixth flavor um that is exclusively offered through um a retailer out on the res shout out to all our the res locations man they are set in tone as well about how things are moving are we as humans thc deficient I, I'm not sure I would describe myself that way, but are we as a whole? Yes. How so? Yes. So um, my theory is that if you just look back, and this is a shared theory, I kind of adopted this. Shout out to Dashita Dawson, um, the the weed head. She actually just got a dope position in New York City. She's the cannabis star. Yeah. Um, shout out to Dashita. Shout out to Dashita. Yes, yes. Um, so she's like my big dog. So we would talk, and she made this really cool smart point because she's really smart <laughs> and she was like you know just think about all of the uh diseases or the things that ail us as a society it's all about imbalance it's all about imbalance right Hi- hypertension or if it's diabetes or if it's high blood pressure or if it's cancer right these are all about imbalance something is overly there or something is deficient right and literally cannabis by nature is a 
homeo- it creates homeostasis, mm-hmm. right? It's about balancing, right? It's if you're too high, you take a little cannabis to come down a little bit. If you're a little low, you take the cannabis with the right terpene profile that it can get you a little higher, right? And boost your energy, right? So it's about creating a balance. At one point, cannabis grew freely in the in the across the country right and the animals that we that we took in and we ate and processed used to eat that that uh that cannabis mm-hmm. right and so essentially we all used to take in a bit of of THC right cuz even if it was just hemp growing wild um which is hemp is the kind of CBD um filled cousin of yeah. of, of 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 marijuana that we know about smoking um, but even if it was hemp, it still had a level of THC that we were intaking. And then subsequently, if we ate that animal, it, we got a little bit of THC. And I think that that kind of is what ties in like the deficiency uh, of that. We got a few minutes left, and I've I've got two two more questions okay. for you. Um, what's your favorite strain? Oof, gun to my head. I can't smoke anything else for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's sour diesel. Uh, it's just a grandma. It's just a. It's just a really good smoke, man. Always. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um. One another question I like to ask my guests. It's very broad, but you know, from your position, from where you're sitting, from where you're standing, what does Buffalo need? Oh man, Buffalo needs togetherness. Um, we just need to uh, combine the talent that's here. So much, so much talent here. So much skill here. So much um, energy for greatness that's here. And I think there needs to be something that unites our efforts. We need some kind of joint um, desire, whether that's just the upward motion of our communities, and we all can agree to that. Um, but in some way, some fashion, we need to kind of combine. Um, all of the talent that we have here. And what I think what can be a catalyst for that? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's just a if that's a group or everybody join Can House. You know what I mean? <laughs> everybody become a member, and then when we meet, we can start to talk about the stuff when we get together. But honestly, that is about a power of of what, why we created this this group is to put like minded people together, and so that you can share ideas that start to allow you to work together. And I think you know. Starting on those small groups in those pockets and growing it out is, is probably the the best way to go about that than maybe just doing some grand project where everybody gets in because it's kind of too many hands in the pot at that time. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to Buffalo. What's next? Thomas O'Neill White here talking about the emerging weed business and weed in general <laughs> with Canna House founder and president Reggie Keith. Reggie, I want to thank you for being here with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me, man. I, I really appreciate uh, you guys shining a light and giving this um, industry, you know, some well-deserved, you know, airtime and coverage, man. We need it, and um, thank, thank you for all you're doing, man. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that. I'm sure we'll have you back on, Anytime. you know, once once, once uh, things really get going within the state, we're going to have you back on. Anytime, man. You got you, you got me. Um, thank you to your listeners for uh, taking the time out to listen, man. And yeah, canadashhouse.com is where you can find the, find us on the web. Um, and follow our IG. It's the second underscore house. Excellent.
And you are listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. <laughs> 